Welcome to the Lone Star Collective podcast, episode number 17. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I am joined today by our guest, Susan Hayes. Susan Hayes is an attorney that's been working on the Smokable Hemp Band, and she's got a big announcement she's going to make. I'm not going to say it for her. Here she is, Susan Hayes. (laughs) Shall I launch right into announcements? Launch right into it. All right. Big announcement is I am running for Texas Agriculture Commissioner. Motivated in large part by how frustrated I have been working on the hemp program and seeing how that agency has handled it, including doing things like making up fees like lot permit fees and transport manifest fees to charge farmers when they are prohibited under the law. I didn't say I I didn't realize personally myself that I guess lot permit fees and things of the nature were prohibited. And when the hemp bill passed in 2019, HB 1325, it was very carefully written to keep Commissioner Miller from making up fees because he has a history of doing that, hiking up fees on farmers and then paying his buddies bigger salaries. So the law is very specific that there can be a hemp license fee of $100 a facility or a location fee for $100 per location. So if all your hemp's in one place, your total cost is only $200. And it explicitly says there can be no other hemp-specific fees. Now, if you want organic certification, they can charge you fees for that. And TDH just ignored that. And instead, charging people $100 per lot permit and $75 for transport manifests. I seem like I know... I think I showed you a while back, there was a group on Facebook where people were having an issue understanding lot permits. They thought that they, yeah. had, to, they had to have so many, every, every so many square feet. And that's not the case. It's not square feet. It is a, any, and this is the same definition or state and federal law, any contiguous area with the same variety. So if you plant four varieties and keep them a variety contiguous to the other plants of that variety, then you've got $400 worth of lot permit fees. And But if you plant them in different locations, you're going to up your fees. And if you, and one thing that I'll back up a little, the way TDA was even applying their own made up illegal fees, they really were creaming nurseries because anytime you moved the plant, they wanted another lot permit. And when you're cultivating starts from seed or even from cuttings in a nursery, you move them around the nursery to different greenhouses with different climatic conditions and then move them outside to harden before you sell them to a customer. And I added it up for a nursery client of mine last summer and it amounted to a tax of $500 per order per variety. Wow. So that made it impossible for Texas nurseries to complete compete with Colorado nurseries because of all those that added fee cost. See, like I know I've toured a couple of facilities now and it's it's been like you said, there's a they they have a start area and then they move it to another yeah. area where they may be observing it. And then it goes into yeah. a like a final room for it to do its final growing. And then you, yeah. and then research in different and, temperature it, and humidity levels in each area in each of those different areas of the greenhouse. And from my understanding, the big thing, like I was, I was pushing for myself at the Capitol was that like the colleges, it's like they're, if you're doing research, you're going to have a shelf. Say you have a shelf with five plants on it. They're all the same. 
when then now you have another shelf with a different five plants and another shelf below that with five mm-hmm. more different plants that you need three lot permit fees just for those three yeah. different shelves. It's like they're going to be uh, consistently cycling things in and out. It becomes insanely expensive it, quickly. It, it was ridiculous. And um, I tried arguing with the agency at the time and they were just not even refusing to engage my question of what is the legal basis for charging these fees was the question I put to them over an email and got a non-answer back. And it's the government taking money from one hand and putting it in another in this, in the college situation, especially if it's a public state college. Not even particularly, I think putting it into improving the program. And there's a lot of things TDA could have done to help farmers. When you, apply to have a variety certified, you're submitting some data about what that variety is supposed to do. Well, why isn't that publicly available? So if you're trying to see what variety you may want to purchase for your hemp farm, you have, you have something to go on. Um, and the same for the results. You know, they are collecting data on what varieties are planted where in Texas. And then when you file your lot permit report, you're telling them how you did be really helpful for farmers to see that, to know if there's a particular variety that just doesn't grow well in South Texas, but did well in North Texas or whatever the case may be. Speaking of the the forms that are filled out, I was approached by somebody at, and they were asking me to go look into how many, I guess, labs had done tests and the test came back as failures. They were hot crops. Right. Because if supposedly there's a form that has to be filled out for that. But when I tried to find this form online, I couldn't find this. There's only like a few select forms that it seems are available to the public. And I'm wondering if you've seen that, if that's something. I, you know, I've not seen, uh, I would just call it a hot crop form. Um, You are obligated to give the results of all pre-harvest testing immediately to TDA the same time the customer gets it. Um, But I do not know if they get that in a particular format other than a certificate of analysis. Because from my understanding, there's, what somebody had, somebody who worked with the lab told me was there's a specific form from TDA they're required to fill out when mm-hmm. a specimen is hot. Yeah. And they have to turn that into TDA. Maybe, and I couldn't find this form. I was like, this is, to me, I was like, this is insane. Just be providing it to their registered hemp labs. Because on a journalist side, I, I personally believe that I should be able to find, easily find this information. So that way I even know what to request from TDA or the state yeah. itself. Um, speaking of ag commissioner stuff, cause there's stuff obviously beyond hemp. Give some of your background in agriculture. Yeah, I grew up in Brownwood ranching on both sides of my family. My father's family ranched in Runnels County, which is where Ballinger, Texas is. And my mother's family ranched in Jones County, which is where Anson, Texas is. And when we were in high school, when I was in high school, we lived on a ranch west of town. Um, and go, you know, I went off to University of Texas and law school at Georgetown and DC came back, clerked at the Texas Supreme court was saddled with student loan debt and went to a corporate firm in Dallas, which was where you could make the best, best money as a young lawyer and lived in Dallas for 15 years, practicing law, mainly business litigation, some securities fraud work, which I'm really glad I was exposed to. Um, That's a hot thing have, right now. <laughs> yes. And, uh, have, you know, never quite been fully comfortable living in a city, say that, uh, and would get out as much as I could and moved back to Austin about 2012, 2013 to chase lobby work. 
and made a very conscious decision to become a cannabis lawyer because I thought it would be about the most interesting thing I could do with my career. Um, about the same period in my life, I started spending a lot of time in the Big Ben and Alpine, getting out there every time I could. And my husband and I bought some land out there several years ago that I really didn't think there would ever be any possibility of making any income off of because it's too small to run cattle. And it never occurred to me at the time we purchased it, it would be possible to grow anything of value on it. And when the hemp bill was passing, we immediately started talking about let's try it up there because it's, it's a microclimate. It's way in the mountains. The altitude is a mile above sea level. And it's a very different climate than, say, Austin. You know, in Austin, the hottest time or most of the eastern half of the state, the hottest time of year is July and August. And yes, in the definitely. Big Ben, it's a little different. The hottest time is really end of June, May and the end of June. And then it starts slowly cooling off. And there's a monsoon season. The rainy time is July and August. So every day about the time it's starting to get hot in the afternoon, it'll rain for five minutes and cool things off. And then because of the dryness and the altitude, the minute the sun goes down, the temperature drops 20 degrees. Unlike what you get in Houston and East Texas and Austin, where in the summer, it's just always hot. <laughs> and I, I grew up just on the other side of Fredericksburg on 290 yeah, out in Harper. And I drive through it every time I go to Alpine. And yep. it's and it's I say it's a nice little in between to there because it's towards the end of the July becomes the hottest. So yeah. you said towards the end of June and July, but we don't get that nice little five minutes of rain you talked about. We always joked yeah. when I was a kid. It's like you know where Harper was at on the weather map because there was just a giant hole where it wasn't going to rain. Right. It's like Kerrville's <laughs> getting rain, Fredericksburg's getting rain, Dawson's, Stonewall, well, and Junction are getting rain. Dead trees along the way that I think are from the the drought from about ten years ago. Yes. Yeah. Um, so tree skeletons everywhere from when, the time it never rained. Yeah. You know, 2020 was a very odd weather year in Alpine because it was the hottest, driest summer on record. The monsoons didn't come. And so our first hemp crop did not go well. I mean, they really struggled in the heat and the dryness, even with irrigation. This last summer, we were experimenting with hops which went very, very well. And we had a very healthy monsoon season this year. So there's a brewery out there that's going to be making an all Texas grown and made beer out of our hops. Nice. Yeah. Locally made beer. And that's, yeah. and that's something to speak about because it seems to be people think there's this war between the alcohol establishments and the cannabis advocates. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we've kind of, I tell people like, we've kind of squashed that beef. It's one of those things of we don't talk about yeah. each other. And we, we kind of try to work together because we don't talk about each other in negative lights. Well, and it, it, it really has. And I know that's broken out in other states as cannabis laws have been reformed. It fortunately hasn't broken out here. And, you know, I've been involved in some, you know, conversations over lunch around the Capitol with some of the liquor lobby or beer lobby just kind of brainstorming through, you know, like, hmm, how is liquor regulated in Texas? What of that makes sense to apply to cannabis with eventual legalization and what doesn't? So, you know, we've got something to learn from our brothers who are working in beer and wine yes. and liquor. And, and they want um, in on this, too. I've seen where some of these companies are already, they're jumping into the cannabis space. Oh, making cannabis infused yeah. products. 
Constellation Brands has made huge investments in cannabis. Um, and also, you know, as I'm trying to explain what cannabis is as an agricultural commodity to other people, I often use wine grapes as an example or grapes as an example. It's definitely I mean, a good analogy. Cannabis is not going to be corn or wheat where it is this high volume commodity of largely the same quality of goods. There are going to be grapes that are made into grape juice or extracted from the cannabis side, extracted for THC or CBD. And then there's going to be high quality grapes that are made to fine wine. And that's going to be your higher quality flour that demands a bigger price in the marketplace. Well, that's mentioning growing up out near Fredericksburg, that area, like definitely they all became, they went from peaches to vineyards, to wine, to wine. <laughs> it took it's a while to get Fredericksburg peaches, which is regrettable. <laughs> and I read an article recently about that, about how they've had this slow shift and it's been the regulation has had to change over time as, yeah. they, as they start learning. And we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to slowly change our regulation as we learn more about where this works in Texas and how it works in Texas, because the way you grow in East Texas, like you're saying, because of the weather and climate is not the same way you're going to grow out in Alpine. Exactly. We're both the farmers learning different cultivation techniques and also regular, you know, the regulations take, they're going to be growing pains. It will be a five to 10 year process. Even after medical cannabis, we finally get full-blown medical cannabis. And even after there's finally legalization. It's, it's fine tuning. And I, I think I kind of expected that we would have more fine tuning this session and we didn't quite get that. No, we have suffered from a fully a lack of a fully educated and engaged author, bill authors and leadership on this issue. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to run for agriculture commissioner is to carry message about cannabis and cannabis regulation and speak about it intelligently. Um, and really be able to ask hard questions, answer hard questions about it, and educate not only the public as I'm campaigning, but also members of the legislature. Um, you know, I'm going to be spending a, more of my, a lot of my time in rural areas, particularly in the West and Northern parts of the state and also along the border. In part out of that's where I'm located, but also those are the areas of the state that particularly need some cannabis education. All righty. Well, we're going to go into our first break here at the Lone Star Collective podcast. We will be right back. Take you for a ride on my big green tractor. We can go slow or make it go faster now. Cliff Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oakcliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flower pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their products quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. 
Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit TexasCanaco.com. That's TXCanaco.com and click the contact tab. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Austin Sam Hariri. Taking a trip out to L.A., tooling along in my Chevrolet, talking on the number and digging on the radio. Just as I crossed the Mississippi line, I heard that highway start to whine, and I knew that left rear tire was about to go. Well, the spare was flat, and I got up tight, because there wasn't a filling station in sight, so I just limped on down the shoulder on the Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Williams, joined today by our guest, Susan Hayes, who is running for Ag Commissioner. She's a, she wants to be running TDA, the Department, Texas Department of Agriculture. And she's been involved in our smokable hemp ban here in Texas. Welcome back, Susan Hayes. Saying thank you for having me. So, speaking of the smokable hemp ban... What is our our latest update on that? What is taking place? We are at the Texas Supreme Court on the merits after final judgment. And we got that up there that quickly because the attorney general's office chose to file what's called a direct appeal. And that means you skip the intermediate court of appeals and you're allowed to do that when a case is challenging a law on a constitutional basis. Um, And, you know, we are still dealing with the issue, this sort of, and this still just as a, and I'll put my nerdy appellate lawyer hat on, you know, the attorney general has taken the position that any time they file a notice of appeal in a case that's got an injunction against the state for violating law, that magically the injunction has stayed. And that has been a hot side issue in appellate law for about a year and a half now. So they have taken that position again. So technically, technically, as far as the attorney general's concerned, the smokable hemp ban is back in place, except Think about what that how that ban was written in the law. It just tells the agencies they can't license people for cultivating or processing or retail sale of smokable hemp. Um, and that's different from a quote unquote ban. And so no one should be getting any trouble out there for having smokable hemp. If anybody does get any trouble out there, calls from dishes, law enforcement, anything like that, please get word to me. Um, because it shouldn't be happening. We will be filing documents with the Supreme Court to clarify that issue and make sure that the injunction is in, remains clearly in place pending appeal. 
Um, and I know that was, that was kind of clear as mud to explain all that, but that's how the attorney general's position has really mucked things up when you are challenging the state for violating the law and violating the Constitution. What method, given you're running for this position, I imagine you don't want to be, you want, you probably have a, you have a special email you've set up for people to contact you for that. I have, I do. It's Susan at Hayes, H-A-Y-S, the number four, A-G is an agriculture.com. So Hayes for ag.com. And that's also the website, your old address. Um. And let me also just say to your listeners, for you know, folks who are really concerned about you know liberating the plant and cannabis, pay attention to the attorney general's race too. That's really important. And it's there's a bunch of candidates in both primaries, both Democrat and Republican. Um, you know, my favorite Democrat is a woman named Michelle Garza. She's a lawyer I've worked with a bunch over the years. She's from Brownsville. <laughs> Uh, the Republican side is, you know, like there's four, maybe five candidates in there. The filing deadline, by the way, is right half an hour or as we finish recording this, the filing deadline will be six o'clock Monday, December 13th. So we'll have a complete list of candidates this evening. And we we here at the Lone Star Collective, we interviewed Joe Jaworski as well. And, yeah, and he's, we, he's great on cannabis, too. And we brought up a, a big issue that and I imagine you probably agree with this is that with the attorney general race is that when we have cases like this, it could be possible given who the attorney general is that it wouldn't go this far because you could have an attorney general that says, maybe we didn't get this right. Right. Maybe we need to go back and review this before we have to go to court. And then if we can't come to some sort of agreement, then we'll go to court about this to let the courts decide. Yeah. When new attorney generals come in, they can and often do change the position of the state in in ongoing court cases. Um, And a similar thing is playing out in the Delta 8 challenge. So you you are saying I want to make sure I say this clearly. The the injunction's been stayed, which means that the injunction has been technically it's been lifted. Yes. Until further notice. Technically, dishes or your local law enforcement could take the position that there can't be any smokable products. They, as a practical matter, should not. And and particularly in the big urban counties, um, Dallas, Travis, Harris, Bear, those DAs have no interest in even prosecuting low-level marijuana possession, so they shouldn't be messing with anybody on hemp. Tarrant County is an outlier among our big urban counties on that. But for those of y'all who are in different counties, if you're getting any heat or complaint from the local powers that be, get the word back to the legal teams on these cases. And on the smokable hemp, that's Matt Zorn, Shane Pennington, and Chelsea Spencer and myself. We should all leave Chelsea away because she just had a baby about a week ago. So she's on maternity leave. Or leave well, her congratulations alone. to you, Chelsea, if you're listening. <laughs> and then on the smokable hemp case, Andrea Steele, um, Jay McGuire has been is not a, not an attorney, but he's been helping orchestrate things behind the scenes. Like great then, guy, great guy, great guy, and they have hired a really stellar appellate team in that case. Um, a friend of mine named Amanda, who's at Butler Snow, and a former Austin Court of Appeals justice named Scott Fields. I know. Um, I see. I know the Delta, the Delta Eight case. It's David Sergi. 
Yeah, he was a trial counsel. Yeah. And I know we Andrea Steele is working the background on that. Yeah. Along with Jay. Um, and then they brought in some a really good appellate team from a law firm called Butler So. Nice. Yeah, I put up a thing about the the Delta 8 case going back and forth. And one of the comments I kept seeing, Reddit, Reddit eats, they eat these these articles up. Whereas right. I'd say Facebook tends to kind of be, uh, Reddit eats it up and asks questions, wants to know what's going on. And a lot of it, they were like, there's too much legal jargon. So I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll get out, like, trying to explain, like, what a TRO is. It's like a temporary restraining yeah. order. And it mm-hmm. only, and I'm like, here, I'll tell people it only lasts two weeks. Whereas an injunction is meant to last until the, the judge says otherwise, correct? Right, correct. So the three stages of challenging anything on constitutional grounds are a TRO or temporary restraining order. And like you said, those are good 14 days. The parties can agree to extend them or the judge can extend it a second 14-day period. And then a temporary injunction is the next stage in federal court that's called a preliminary injunction. And that is um, kind of an interim order while the case is pending until you get to final trial and go for your permanent injunction. And what you're trying to prove as you go through those three steps shifts at TRO stage, it's all about the status quo. We don't want to change what the current reality is until the court has a chance to really think about things on the merits. So let's take the smokable hemp case as a result. When we went in for the TRO there, we argued that, look, people have been selling this stuff for a year and a half because, you know, that the law passed in spring of 2019, dishes did not get the rules out for 18 months when they did the super aggressive adding on distribution and retail sale to the production and um, manufacturing ban or alleged ban, I should say, poorly worded ban, I should say. And so it was real easy, an argument that people would have to stop doing what they're already doing there. As you move to the temporary injunction stage, the merits become more important, status quo slightly less so. And then permanent injunction is just about the merits. Um, So you really have to, as time goes on, have to prove your case a little bit more. And from my understanding, when I I had to take a media law class, and we talked about slap lawsuits. And yeah. it, it was kind of similar in how we, we said you pretty much you're, you're approaching the judge to ask, can you get a preliminary ruling? And that's what that injunction is. You're kind of saying, hey, we we'd like, as they say, the status quo, how things used to be right. put, put back in place. Right now, let's not undo anything. Um, and it's, you know, and on these cases, time is our friend. The more time that goes by while the industry's building out, there's more locations, more business people, the harder it is for the state to put that genie back in the bottle. That's why I tell people, I'm like, it's, it's like the toothpaste coming out of the tube. Good luck getting it back in. Exactly. I've had people exactly. tell me, like, it's hurting cats. I was like, well, time and patience, you can hurt cats. <laughs> you really well, can. It, <laughs> it kind of another layer of absurdity to it all is the state is spending a billion dollars to put cops down on the border and they won't cough up five to 10 million, which is nothing in the scope of the state's budget, which is in excess of a hundred billion to beef up the crime labs. And I know there's some people out there who are like, whoa, 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 we don't want the crime labs beefed up, but we really do as an industry because those, it's not just about testing THC potency in flour. 
It's about testing mystery substances and vape pens that came bad actors or people or China or wherever else. And one thing I learned that really surprised me when I was work drafting some bill language during session, and I was talking to one of the crime labs here in Texas is, you know, and I made a little crack about, you know, when we get cannabis fully legalized, this line between hemp and marijuana won't matter so much. And she said, no, actually it will. And she had talked to her counterparts in Colorado and learned in Colorado, the crime labs test more cannabis since it was legalized than they did before. And it's about stamping out the black market and stamping out bad actors who are using dangerous pesticides on plants or other adulterants in, in product, whether it's edibles or extract or what have you. And it, you know, it it's behooves the good actors and the people who play by the rules to make sure the bad actors are identified and thinned out, not to mention the public health and safety. It's not good for the industry if we have another Evoli crisis. Um, and that's the acronym for the phenomena to, that happened to people's lungs when they were using vapes that had adult, had vitamin E acetate in them a couple of years ago, which killed people and blew out other people's lungs. That that drives me to a point that something that was brought up during committee, both committee hearings for hemp in the legislative session, and it was that doing audits on the labs themselves to ensure that it's like people are a going to a lab, mm-hmm. the COA is legitimate, and that things aren't being falsified, and that that would be a big improvement to stamp out the bad actors in this industry. Because yeah, then they have nothing absolutely. to, they, they, it's a lot more difficult for them to skirt around if they have a bad product. Yeah. And, you know, the one crime the hemp bill added to the books was using a fake COA. So don't do it. <laughs> like any, that can get you in big trouble. Um, using a fake COA or a COA that doesn't really match that batch of product that you're attributing it to. Well, and I wonder, how do you feel about, us Texas setting up the program to where the COAs have to be accessed from the actual labs database. So if you scan the QR code, it comes directly from their database rather than whatever company's website. Instead of the retailer's database. Correct. That's kind of a great idea because there sure is a broad range of how well people's QR codes work. Um, and I'll give you an example. At the beginning of session, there was some press about a shop being raided in Port Lavaca. And I went and looked on their website and they had a listing of to see what I looked at the press stories to see what are, what got raided exactly what's going on here. And then looked on the, the shop's website and they had a listing for COAs and there was exactly one COA there when they were selling dozens and dozens of products. Okay, that's a bad practice. Yeah, that's something I've seen where they're like, oh, we've got COAs. And you go look and it's like they've got a brownie, a lollipop and a cart and right. they all got the same COA. And it's like, obviously, that's there's different stuff in a brownie work. than a cart. <laughs> That QR code should take them, take any consumer. The idea behind the law was that consumers know what they're getting. And it's too hard, I think, to often to change labeling. And it's also too hard to fit all the information on a smaller product's label. So the idea is a consumer in a store can whip out their smartphone, click on that QR code and see what's in this product. Is there any tetrahydrocannabinols in it? How much CBD is in it? So they know what they're getting and aren't misled or aren't just blinded because they don't have access to the information. 
Well, we're going to go into our second break here at the Lone Star Collective. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, joined by Susan Hayes, who is running for Ag Commissioner in Texas. We will be right back after this sponsor break. On the Sunday morning sidewalk, wishing love that I was stoned. Oakcliff Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oakcliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flower pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their products, quality, or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit TexasCanaco.com. That's TXCanaco.com and click the contact tab. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Austin Sam Hariri. One of the best cannabis attorneys in Texas, running for ad commissioner here in Texas as well, part of the Smokable Hemp Band case. Welcome back. Thank you, Mike. So we were talking about the hemp stuff and changing the law here in Texas and having some, I would say, reasonable regulation in place, try to get rid of some of the bad actors we have. I want to try to switch to other things that ad commissioners would be involved with because it's it's obviously more than just hemp mm-hmm. we've got we've got yeah. cotton you said bar, you mentioned like barley cattle. there's cattle we're one of the cattle biggest. is about a half of our agricultural output in terms of dollars in the state oh for um, sure yeah it all kind of walk out through what the ag commission really does and if you look at it in terms of its budget about 80 percent of it is school lunches and food for the food insecure, people with disabilities, old folks. That money is all federal pass-through money. It comes from USDA. And it's used both to provide nutrition to people and also to purchase commodities like milk and cheese and whatever else. Um, 
it, the state itself only appropriates about $65 million to the ag department. Pesticides regulation and inspection is a big role of the ag department. Uh, something the ag department does that very few people realize or know is that it support rural hospitals and rural hospitals have been closing left and right around the state. Oh, yeah, that's, that's been a big issue it's, now. Huge issue. And a big reason for that is because we did not refuse to take the Medicaid waiver. And what the Medicaid waiver means is you can get more federal money, i.e. tax dollars we've already paid into the federal government to provide health care. We're technically getting our money back. We're getting our money back. And I the refusal to take it was just political spite you know, wanting to own the libs or troll Obama or whatever else. And it's just kind of dumb. It's like your daddy bought you a really nice car, but then you got grounded and couldn't take it out on Saturday night. So you burned your own car down. And that's what we've done with that. And it's particularly hit rural hospitals because rural hospitals have a lot more poor folks in their service area. And the reimbursement rates are much lower than they would be than if we took the waiver. The office also has a rural economic development component. And the backstory on how ag came to have these rural healthcare and economic development components was in the 90s, they were standalone. They were little mini state agencies really focused on those issues. And in one of the sunset bills, they got folded into the ag department. And they really have just been rotting in the basement. And there's so much good that can be done with those if any efforts were made. And I would very much intend to make them should I be elected. Um, and then there's you know some other pieces of it, like marketing and promoting Texas products. That's actually a very small part of the budget, but certainly an important role. One piece of it I'm very fascinated with now that I've been reading up and understand more of our national food supply is why the state of Texas doesn't produce more fruits and vegetables. 80 to 90% of our fruits and vegetables as a country come from California. And we're, we literally have put all of our eggs in one basket, and the basket is the Great Valley of California. So if that area to where have a, an environmental disaster, like a big flood, which California has historically had about once every 150 years, they're way overdue for one, that would be a huge disruption to our food supply. So I would like to look for ways to encourage Texas to produce more fruits and vegetables so that we have a more secure food supply. And, you know, and the pandemic really brought that to a fore as supply chains were disrupted. You know, we've gotten to the habit of shipping agricultural such wide agricultural products, such wide distances, long distances. And it's kind of silly for a state like Texas to import that much food. Um, and a, a subspecies of that idea is the specialty products that this state used to produce a lot of. We talked earlier about grapes displacing Fredericksburg peaches. Uh, I really miss Pecos cantaloupe, and that's something that was widely available when I was younger. I've been living out on the Trans-Pecos for the last couple of years, and you can we can get some Pecos cantaloupe here and there, but I drive by those fields where they used to be cultivated, and people just aren't growing them anymore. And I, at this point, I don't know what's up with that, but I intend to find out. Same with other local products, um, like the Noonday onions. Noonday was famous for its sweet onions, and they're not as available anymore. And I suspect that has to do with the economics of farming now, with the cost or lack of labor supply. Um, You know, a lot of different things that could be going to the fore there that limit our access to locally grown foods, fruits, and vegetables in the state. 
Speaking of marketing, um, I want to get your position on commodity boards. That was something yes. that was brought up to me about definitely in the hemp field, but I, you mentioned like fruits and vegetables. And it's, I wonder where you said it, you said at with us having, I guess, more commodity boards in the state to market mm -hmm. those items. Well, it's, and also I'm going to pull back kind of even bigger picture of the role I see of state government and the Department of Agriculture. It's to help people produce and help people make a living in agriculture. And the government has access to big picture data that individual farmers don't. So they should be using that data to help the farmers. They should be collaborating with Texas A&M AgriLife more. Um, AgriLife is present in every county to teach farmers and help them. And TDA needs to have a bigger role with that. And also need to be crunching that economic data and looking for high value crops that may be an opportunity in Texas. And that could be hops. It could not be. It could be hops doesn't grow well anywhere, but hopefully a little valley my husband and I have in the mountains. Um, that's a funky little microclimate. But there's just not any, you, you know, you look at the website, there's not any real direction to help people and encourage people to get into agriculture, uh, particularly growing fruits and vegetables. Well, part of it, and as you mentioned before, is that the rural areas, a lot of there's this big misconception, and I was going for it to an extent, is that people think that the rural areas have a lot of money because they're like, oh, I see them in a nice big truck. They got all this mm -hmm. expensive equipment. And I watched a documentary a while back, and it was talking about the economics of living a rural life where you're a yeah. farmer. And the guy yeah. was mentioning, he's like, we spent like $300,000 this year on our crops, equipment, labor. And when we sell it all by the end of the year, we're only going to sell it for roughly three ten to three fifteen total. Yeah, exactly. So we're making. It was like wow, they're actually making less than a thousand dollars a month on average. And then the question came up, like you mentioned with the rural hospitals, is if you fell out of your tractor or somebody happened to be out in the field doing something, and they got hurt, you don't have traditional health care because you can't. If you paid mm -hmm. for what we consider traditional health care now, it would take all your money. Well, it, it's lack of access to level one trauma care hospitals or level two. And level one means the highest ability to care for someone who's suffered traumatic injury. Um, you know, in the Big Ben, people are always pushing helicopter subscription services because, you know, people refuse to go to the hospital because they don't want to pay for the ride. They get hit with their insurance with $10,000 well, or yes. more for an ambulance ride or a helicopter ride. Um, and, and then with farmers, What's happening to them is they become, even if they own their own land, in essence, tenant farmers to Monsanto or John Deere. They have yeah. to pay so much to get their seed, to get their fertilizers. The seeds are engineered just to work with those fertilizers. Uh, there's a big issue now with right to repair. You know, with big tractor manufacturers like John Deere require farmers to only let John Deere work on them and oh, yeah. they charge them an arm right and a leg. Right to repair. That is, I am, yeah. I'm a tech and, guy at heart. I'm a tech guy and right to repair yeah. is a big deal with that. It's huge. And so some of these big farmers barely make any money. Um, and I'll uh, throw out a, a, a plug, a local author. There's a book called Perilous Bounty that a guy named Tom Philpot wrote, who lives part-time in Austin and who incidentally was at UT the same time I was. And he does a really great analysis of what the economics of big farming are 
both in California, and he uses California and Iowa as an example. But I was shocked by some of the data in the book that Iowa corn farmers, on average, don't make any money. And they're so indentured to that corporate feedback loop, but also federal agricultural policies that promote the growing of corn to the detriment of other crops. And no one's looking at things like erosion and soil quality um, that were really with some of our farming practices headed for some greater environmental disaster than we would have otherwise. Question, um, how much does TDA deal with infrastructure when it comes to resources? Could we something I've heard recently talking about like water rights and oh, and look not- at and I look at areas like La Mesa and I'm like, they possibly could benefit from having some infrastructure to help retain water yeah. when they do get rain. Uh, different agencies like the Texas Water Development Board are going to be more focused on water rights. But one role TDA can play is helping identify where the problems are and facilitating those conversations. And I, I was just off on my first little campaign trip. I went down to Laredo Friday for a meeting of the state democratic board and also of some of the the statewide candidates and had an opportunity to sit down uh, with a guy named Jay Clayberg, who's running for land commissioner, who is is part of the King Ranch family. And he's an environmentalist and has very progressive ideas about land use. And also a woman named Janet Dudding, who's running for comptroller, who is a forensic governmental accountants. You know, she spent her whole career ferreting out fraud in government. And, you know, we were chatting back and forth along with Luke Warford, who's running for railroad commission, about issues really across multiple agencies. And wouldn't it be great if we were working, if we, if it, should we all be elected really working together to solve problems like access to water, soil quality, land use, things like that. We're going to go into our third break here at the Lone Star Collective podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, joined by guest Susan Hayes, who's running for Ag Commissioner of Texas. We will be right back. Oakcliff Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oakcliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flower pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their product's quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. You know it would be cool if your business was mentioned on a podcast several times an episode. Well, you could have a slot right here on the Lone Star Collective just like the one I'm doing right now. Show your community that your business supports changes to social welfare regarding cannabis in Texas. Inform our audience that you are a supporter of independent journalism and the activism work we put in while informing them about your business. Let your customers know where you are located and what you offer the community. For more information on getting your business mentioned on Lone Star Collective, visit TexasCanaco.com. That's TXCanaco.com. And click the contact tab. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective podcast, distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Austin Sam Hariri. 
Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams, joined by guest Susan Hayes. Welcome back, Susan. How are you doing? Doing just fine. So I want to reserve this last little 10 minutes for anything you've, you've been wanting to push out, anything you've been having on your mind that you you look forward to saying, I guess, on the campaign trail, anything you think is very much of importance to the agriculture community. There we go. I do love your theme song. <laughs> Originally, and I wanted to play the original. It's Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Everybody thinks it's The Clash. The original's by Buddy Holly and the Crickets. I fought the law. I didn't know he did the original of that. That's pretty cool. Yep. Um, and shame on me for not knowing that because I fancy myself knowledgeable of Texas music. Um, so, and I so we've only got a few minutes left. I'll kind of talk about what things are going to look like going forward in the election as I sit here and hit refresh on who's filing. Um, Primary is going to be the first Tuesday in March, March 1. So if you're not registered to vote, get yourself registered, get your friends registered. You can find out information about candidates. Great place, a good source is the League of Women Voters. If you want a sort of objective listing and information about them. Um, Question about that real quick. The general election will be next November. Yes. Um, I actually read an article the other day talking about with the DOJ lawsuit, There is there a possibility that the primary date would be moved? Not. I think not. Um, and it's our courts have are very different than they were 10 years ago. And um, 10 years ago, the federal courts were a lot more willing to jump in. And that what has changed is all the Trump appointees. And the Fifth Circuit was very conservative 10 years ago. Now it's 10 times more conservative and just not interested in doing anything to stop or interfere, even if a lower court finds a law is by or an action of the government is violating constitutional rights. Um, the maps that have been drawn in Texas are crazy, crazy unconstitutional to me and compared to what's passed in the past and what's been approved in the past. So we'll see. Um, what could happen is we may run on different maps for the Texas House, Senate, or Congress this election cycle than we end up running in next election cycle. That feels okay. a little bit more likely to me. Um, and then the other thing that may have, what may have bumped the primary is if it's not going to now is if the legislature had not passed redistricting bills in a timely fashion. There was a law passed in the lot during the regular session that would have automatically moved the primary and the filing dates had that happened, but it didn't. So primary stole a go and filing deadline is today. Okay. Continue on, please. Um, in which direction? I think about what you would, you would like to tell people who are, who are going out to vote. I, people you're probably going to see out on a campaign trail. You're going to be going on. Yeah. It just get involved and it go to your, if you see local candidates having a forum, go and ask them about cannabis policy and where they stand. You know, for the first time recently, the numbers of Republican primary voters who support legalization tipped over 50%. So why don't we have it? You know, and, and it's because the leadership and the people in office are still scaredy cats or hostile. 
Um, the votes are there in the legislature, certainly for medical expansion. Their votes are there for legalization among Democratic members and are close to there on the Republican members. But it's Dan Patrick, most of all, Governor Abbott to a lesser degree, who are the obstacles to getting any real cannabis form and reform in this in this state. Anything else you would like to add? Anything uh, websites you would like to plug? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say my own again. It's Hayes, the number four ag, ag.com. So HayesforAg.com. And there's be more content getting rolled in on that website as we build it out about what the department does and why I think I would do a hell of a better job than Sid Miller. Okay. Um, Texas Hemp Legal Defense Fund. Is there anything you want to say about that? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And if for y'all who are concerned about the smokable hemp case, there is a fund set up to help pay some of those costs for that. Uh, you know, people like to say, hey, if something if unconstitutional law passes, we'll just sue. Or there'll just be a lawsuit. Lawsuits are incredibly expensive and hundreds of thousands of dollars to see one through to the end. And legal fees and also expert witness fees. You know, an expert witness was hired for that case and that costs, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So contributions are very much appreciated there. It helps the overall cause with cannabis. Having when cases do go up on cannabis issues, having a good legal team on it is just so important to me, because if you've got a not great legal team, then you get bad precedent and it can take years, if not decades to get that undone once it's been put in place. Yeah, it could be difficult. If I remember correctly, it was an economist that was brought in. Was it yeah, like a special a witness? Economists. Yeah. And people and, probably and hear expert witnesses are expensive. Period. See, people probably hear ten, twenty thousand dollars. They're like, well, well, that's a lot of money for the guy to talk for five minutes in a case. And it's like the guy isn't just talking mm -hmm. for five minutes in a case. He's doing months upon yeah. months of research He's into how this will affect the industry. Raw data. Exactly. He's digging through raw data. He's writing a report. Um, and then he is sitting for questioning, getting prepared for questioning. You know, we always work your witnesses to get them ready to be questioned. Uh, fortunately, we didn't go through depositions in that case because those are super expensive and tiring. Um, but we did have to put on his testimony and his evidence about the effect on the economy if smokable hemp were, were banned. And on individual shops, you know, Sarah Curver's shop, Custom Botanical Dispensaries was one of the plaintiffs. And it was great to have a mom and pop shop like that stand up and talk about more than half of her revenue came from smokable products. And if you prohibit them, then she goes out of business. It's a it's a big deal. As you said, your website, Hayes, the number four, AG, HayesForAg.com, correct? That's correct. Y'all can find out more information about Susan Hayes, who is running for Agriculture Commissioner in Texas. That's going to be the leadership of TDA. That is going to do it for this episode of Lone Star Collective. I want to thank you, Susan, for joining us, giving information to everybody getting information out about not just yourself, but about the smokable hemp ban as that's a big item right now in the cannabis community. Appreciate your time. It's you're always welcome to come join us. Anytime. It's always fun. And that will be it for episode 17. Everybody have a great day.